This is Songwriter, the podcast that turns stories into songs. My name is Ben Arthur. This week, we have a song from one of my favorite artists, Ted Leo. But first, we'll hear the story that inspired the song from author Joyce Carol Oates. The story was read as part of a live performance at Joe's Pub in New York City. Hey, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for, for coming out on a rainy Monday night. I'm here uh, to introduce Joyce Carol Oates. Joyce Carol Oates has been killing it so hard and so long that she is bored with introductions like this. Um, <laughs> she also finds it boring and uh, sexist when people uh, ask her where her, her dark streak comes from. She points out that people rarely ask that of, say, Stephen King. And guess who asked her that very question <laughs> the first time he met her? This guy right here. I uh, can only um, say it is a, a great honor and a great pleasure. She's going to read an excerpt from a story called Deceit. It's from a book called Black Dahlia and White Rose. And what you have missed is uh, the main character, Candace, has been called into the guidance counselor's office. And she doesn't know why. Candace is a little scattered. She's got a teeny little drug problem, and she has been confronted with the fact that her daughter, Kimmy, has some bruises that she didn't know about. Candace has gone home and is just at this point starting the conversation with Kimmy, and she has uh, seen that Kimmy has a, a deep scar under her hair. And without further ado, please welcome to the stage Joyce Carol Oates. Thank you, Ben, for the unusual introduction. I'm actually very rarely bored. I'm always keenly and intensely and anxiously interested in what people are going to say about me. So I'm going to be reading an excerpt from the story. When I wrote the story, it was really the very, uh, the very quintessence of tension and sort of mounting dread. So I'm, I'm wondering, I have never read it before out loud, so I'm wondering if I'll be replicating some of that. It's a sort of escalating sense of things just going completely out of control, trying to keep them in control and then sort of realizing that chaos is sweeping in. Kimmy pushes Candace's hands away. Kimmy's flushed face as if her soft, smooth cheeks have been slapped. Mom, I told you, it's just nothing. If there'd been stitches, they'd have shaved my head. Think how ugly it would be. Kimmy makes a fastidious little face, an unconscious mimicry of her mother. But Kimmy, not even to tell me about it. Kimmy scuttles away, drawing her knees to her chest. Candace is surprised, as always, by the fleshiness of her daughter's thighs and hips, the swell of her breasts, and now the hostility in Kimmy's eyes, which are red-rimmed and thin-lashed as if she has been rubbing at them irritably with a fist. That really, really bothers you, Mom, doesn't it, that you were not told? Oh, yes, of course. I was summoned to this terrible woman's office in your school, Lee W. Weedle, Ph.D. It was an occasion for your school psychologist to terrify and humiliate me and to threaten me. Threaten you? How? She might report your injuries to some authority, abuse hotline, something like that. 
Oh, but I told them my injuries are accidental. They can't make me testify to anyone hurting me because no one did. But this cut in your scalp, does it hurt now? Does it throb? No, ma'am, it does not throb. Well, it could become infected. It could not become infected, I told you. Scotty swabbed disinfectant on it, and anyway, it doesn't hurt. I've forgotten about it, actually. Candace lunges clumsily. This is what a mom would do. To hug Kimmy and to kiss the top of her head, the ugly zipper scab hidden beneath the feathery hair as Kimmy stiffens his alarm, then giggles embarrassed. Jeez, mom, I'm okay. Candace shuts her eyes and presses her face against Kimmy's warm scalp. She is fearful what comes next and would like to clutch at Kimmy for a little longer, but the girl is restless and perspiring, resisting. Mom, hey, okay, please, I, I need to work now, Mom. I have homework. Yes, but it can wait for a minute more. Please show me your shoulders now and your upper arms. Dr. Weedle said you're bruised. What? Show you what? No. Now Kimmy shrinks away furious. She raises her knees to her chest, prepares to use her elbows against Mom. Candace is trembling. Is this abuse, this? Asking her 14-year-old daughter to partly disrobe for her and submit to an examination? Candace is in terror, for maybe she is to blame, in her sleep in an alcoholic blackout, abusing her own daughter and forgetting it. Kimmy is more protective of her body beneath her clothes than she was of the wound in her scalp, crying, Leave me alone. Don't touch me. You're crazy. I hate you. But Candace kneels on the bed in a twisted comforter, straddling the resisting daughter. Kimmy is shrieking, furious. Candace is trying to pull the sweatshirt up, to pull it partly over her head so that she can see the girl's shoulders and arms. Oh, this is shocking, frightening. The bruises on Kimmy's pale, soft shoulders, ugly, rotted, purple, yellow. In order to see Kimmy's upper arms, Candace has to tug the sweatshirt off her head, and as the girl kicks and curses, I hate you. Kimmy's fine, soft hair crackles with static electricity. Her eyes are widened. Like a furious, snorting animal, she brings a knee against Candace's chest, knocking the breath out of her. Candace is disbelieving. How can this be happening? She who loves her daughter so much, and Kimmy who has always been so sweet, docile, I hate you. Candace stares at the bruises on her daughter's shoulders and upper arms, beneath her arms, redded welts, and on the tops of her breasts, which are smallish, hard girl breasts. For several seconds, Candace is unable to speak, her heart is pounding so violently. It does look as if someone with strong hands, strong fingers, had grabbed hold of Kimmy and shook, shook, shook her. Your father, did, did he, is this, and you're protecting him? Don't be ridiculous, ma'am. You know Dad would never touch me. Kimmy, Kimmy says scornfully, I mean, Daddy never even kisses me. How did he get close enough to abuse me? Kimmy's laughter is awful, like something being strangled. Then who? Who did this? Nobody did anything, ma'am. Whatever it was, I did to myself. I'm a klutz. You always said so. Always falling down and hurting myself. My own fault. Kimmy's eyes shine with tears. Damn is out of character for her. Klutz. To call your daughter a klutz, or to conspire with others, including the daughter herself, and calling her klutz, however tenderly, 
is to participate in a kind of child molestation. This seems clear to Candace, like a stark match shoved into her face. Oh, Kimmy, you are not a klutz. Don't say that about yourself. Mom, I am. You know I am. Falling, tripping, spilling things, ripping my clothes, banging my damn head, my legs. With a furious jocosity, Kimmy speaks, striking her ample thighs with her fists, and a fat cow klutz on top of it. Family joke was that Kimmy was a little butterball, chubby legs and arms, fatty creased face like a moon pie and so eager, spilling her milk glass, tapping out of a high chair, spraining her wrist and her ankle and falls off a tricycle or down a flight of stairs. Philip, our baby daughter's a piglet, cutest little piglet with red eyes, red snub nose like a miniature snout, funny little pig ears, but too bad, no sweet little tail. A young mother high on Demerol entranced with her baby. Oh, Jesus, it is a baby, but mine, not mine. The horror washing over her, even as she felt love for the little piglet, so powerful could scarcely breathe. Even now, 14 years later, a muscle constricts in her heart. Can't breathe, can't breathe. Love comes too strong. 14 years later, not that much has changed, except the baby's father's out of the picture, even more than he was then. That day, returning home from Weedle, and yes, Candace took another 30 milligram lorazepam, reasoning that she will not be engaged in heavy, operating heavy machinery for the remainder of the day. And yes, Candace washed down the capsule with a glass of tart red wine, but no, Candace did not sleep but spent headache hours at her computer, clicking on abuse, girls, drawn to read of abuse, rape, female cutting, slaughter in Africa, until she became faint, thinking, where were the girls' mothers? How do they bear a living? Thinking, jokes cease when little girls are raped and strangled and left to die. Exactly as Weedle said, you can see the imprint of fingers in Kimmy's skin. I'm asking you again, Kimmy, who did this to you? Kimmy grabs her sweatshirt back from Candace as her pulls it furiously over her head. Please tell me, was it a boy? I, I, I hope not a teacher. Candace hears herself beg. Candace wants to give, gather Kimmy in her arms for another hug, but knows that the girl will, hug, will elbow her impatiently away. Mom, for God's sake, cool it. But honey, I want to protect you. I want to be a good mother. It isn't too late, is it? Please don't push me away. Flush face, Kimmy yanks the sweatshirt down, as far as it will go. She's exasperated and embarrassed, but seeing the expression on her mother's face, she relents. Well, see, what happened wasn't primary. It was like a secondary factor. What do you mean, secondary? The cut on my head wasn't on purpose. Nobody actually hit me. I was slow doing something, and she pushed me from behind. And I stumbled, hit my own damn head on something sharp, not a locker door, but a chrome table edge. And she stopped the bleeding and put disinfectant on it and kissed it and was sorry, so it's okay, it's like nothing. Well, who did this? She? Scotty, who we've been talking about. Scotia? Scotia did this to you? What do you mean? Oh, oh mom, geez, just forget it. But. What did Scotia do to you? Pushed you? So you fell and hit your head? Why? Kimmy shrugs. 
Kimmy's eyes shine with a sort of defiant merriment, but her skin is reddening. Why would Scotia do such a thing? What were the circumstances? Oh, probably some stupid thing I said, or didn't answer fast enough. Scotty has a problem with slow. Half the kids in our class, Scotty says, are retards. That cut in your scalp, Scotia cause, but why are you protecting her? Yes, my scalp, Mom, and my damn arms you're so excited about. Scotia was helping me on the bar, gymnastics. Scotia did that too, gymnastics? Well, we were fooling around at her house. She's got all this Nautilus equipment her dad bought for her. You're always telling me to lose weight, so I'm doing exercises at Scotty's. There are these, like, bars you hang on. Scotty was showing me how. No big deal, ma'am. Will you stop staring at me? I hate it. I'll call Scotia's mother. This has got to stop. It stopped, ma'am. I told you it wasn't anyone's fault. It was Scotia's fault, and it's not going to happen again. No, don't you dare call Mrs. Perry. Scotty is the only thing in my life that means anything. The only person who gives a damn about me. If you take Scotty from me, I will kill myself. Candace begins crying. Her swollen face seems to be melting. When Candace moves to embrace her, Kimmy puts her away as, pushes her away as Candace expected. Candace stumbles downstairs. Rapidly, her mind is working. Thoughts fly at her, through her like neutrinos. Can't quite comprehend the significance of these thoughts or what they are urging her to do. For a mom must do, a mom must more than simply be until she's in the kitchen peering into the refrigerator. No Odwala smoothies? None. But there are ingredients for smoothies. Candace could make her own for Kimmy and for herself. Strawberries and raspberries, banana, orange juice, a remainder of a container of yogurt blended together in the shiny, rarely used blender. She is thrilled to be preparing something homemade for Kimmy that she knows Kimmy will love, and she knows that Kimmy is hungry for Kimmy is always hungry at this time of day. The blender yields two tall glasses of strawberry tinned smoothies, rich with nutrients and delicious. Candace thinks, but more. She goes to a kitchen door where there's an old stash of pills, pre-lorazepam, a handful of anti-anxiety meds. With tremulous fingers, she empties one of the glasses into the blender, tosses in a pill or two or three, and whips the liquid again grinds the pills to her froth, re-pours into the glass. Then, who knows why, she empties the other glass into the blender and tosses in a pill or two or three and whips the liquid again into a strawberry-hued froth. Upstairs, there's Kimmy sprawled on her bed, still wet-faced, panting and indignant. She's been texting on her cell phone, which with clumsy, childish deceit, she tries to hide beneath a book so Mom can't see. Of course Mom can see, but Mom smiles radiant and forgiving as if not seeing, carrying the tall, brimming glasses of strawberry, raspberry, banana smoothies. For you, sweetie, and for me. Kimmy is sullen but surprised and pleased. She can't resist, of course, mumbling, thanks, Mom. For truly, Kimmy is a well-behaved and polite girl and always hungry. Without waiting to be invited, Candace sits cautiously on the edge of the badly rumpled bed, and both Kimmy and Candace drink their smoothies, which in fact are delicious. Better than what you get in the store, isn't it? And Kimmy, yes, it's concede, yes. 
Just so I love, just so you know, I love you, honey. You do, don't you know this? Kimmy shrugs. Maybe. Soon Kimmy is yawning and blinking in a futile effort to keep her eyes open, and Candace says, Yes, why don't you have a nap before dinner, sweetie? A nap is a very good idea, as Kimmy whimpers faint as a kitten sighing and curling up to sleep, unprotesting amid the stuffed animals that Candace has contrived to arrange on the bed. As Candace, grunting with effort, beginning to feel lightheaded, straightens the comforter, fluffs up the flat and tear and mucus dampened pillow. Kimmy's face is still puffy and heated. There's a babyish glisten at her nostrils. With her new caution, Candace takes away the smoothie glasses, makes her way feeling faint and swaying into the hall into the bathroom to wash each glass thoroughly in hot water, rub her fingers around inside the glasses and again hold them beneath the hot gushing water and then return to Kimmy's room, making her way carefully now, knowing it is crucial not to slip, not to fall heavily onto the floor. Candace returns to the white wicker girl's bed where Kimmy is now snoring faintly, lying on her side with her head flung back, her fine pale brown hair in a halo on the pillow, beads of sweat at her forehead. Carefully, Candace climbs onto the bed and gathers Kimmy in her arms, her heart is suffused with love for her limp, unresisting daughter, sweet little piglet. Mommy's own piglet. She has forgotten to switch off the light. The goddamn light is in her eyes. But what the hell? That was Joyce Carol Oates reading an excerpt of Deceit from her recent collection, Black Dahlia and White Rose. And now we turn to the song that the story has inspired. Hello, my name is Ted Leo. Uh, I am an artist and musician, period. Ted Leo has been crushing it for almost as long as Joyce Carol Oates. He's shared a stage with giants like Radiohead and Jane's Addiction, and as well as releasing dozens of EPs, singles, and albums, recently launched a band project with Amy Mann called The Both. I asked Ted if he often takes inspiration from other works of art. It's been pretty rare, but I have um, actually specifically written uh, sort of directly off of another another piece. I'd read Dickens' Hard Times. I actually was moved to write a song sort of uh, directly taking off from one of the characters in the, in the book, but that, I don't do that really very often at all. I mean, that's probably less than one hand you could count. said what struck him about Deceit when he'd first read it. I think that what what initially grabbed me about it and, and ha- really has stuck with me um, is this sense, this, this um, sort of desperate codependency that Candace you know, seems to have for, for Kimmy and um, her, sort of her inability to um, express or channel her emotions healthily. I mean, I found the basic dynamic 
you know, between parent and child. Extreme, but relatable. <laughs> An extreme version of a very relatable dynamic. It, made, it reminded me of, of um, family dynamics that, that I uh, have lived through at, at, you know, not just as a child, but at various times in my life. Ted has spoken publicly about his history of abuse, and I asked if this is what he was referring to. Let me be clear that, you know, the um, abuse that uh, that I um, am a victim of was not actually from, you know, my family, but, um, but I, you know, my family did not do a great job of dealing with it. Um, and I think some of that was literally fear, you know, fear of all of the attendant emotion. So powerful and overwhelming that um, you know you hold it back uh, and then of course it bursts out in other again negative negative attention seeking even you know ways I think especially in the bridge um which is the more specifically personal thing to me. I think I'm putting myself uh, in the relationship uh, in Kimmy's position. Being the, the dependent in a uh, parent-child relationship and feeling, you know, winding up feeling essentially abandoned and having to then uh, stake out your own space and cut yourself off to a degree from what could and in the story obviously really does wind up becoming a a, a very abusive situation a very dangerous um, situation I don't want to you know throw my uh, my parents under the bus they're fantastic people and they they did you know a, a great job um, there and and you know a lot of this is on me also and my inability to, to sort of bridge uh, gaps when I maybe uh, should have uh, tried harder or been able to but um I just realized that, like, well, none of the, none of these things I have to do are going to get done if I don't do it myself, you know. So, so you, uh, so you do them. And now a studio recording of Ted Leo's song "Deceit." Beyond 
was Ted Leo's song, Deceit, written in response to a story of the same name by Joyce Carol Oates from her book, Black Dahlia and White Rose. Her most recent novel is My Life as a Rat. Ted Leo's most recent solo album is The Hanged Man, and you should also check out his podcast with Amy Mann called The Art of Process from Maximum Fun. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with a friend or on social media and rating and subscribing on your podcast app of choice. The next episode will feature a story from Roxanne Gay and a song written in response by Aya Aziz.